question the important issues of today and try to find a sort of spiritual connection? Welcome to Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman as your host. Religion deals with the most fundamental issues humans face. There are arguments for and against the existence of God, where religion belongs in everyday life and a number of questions left unanswered. This is where it all gets discovered. Now, here is Father John Holloman. Hello, it's always nice to be back with you. This week we're going to talk about perhaps one of the most difficult experiences in the the life of uh, the Jewish people, and that is the Babylonian exile. It began when the Babylonian uh, Babylonians revolted against Assyria and succeeded in defeating the Assyrian army sent against them. And they proceeded to reconquer the, all the territory that the Assyrians had had, <clears throat> which brought them into uh, Palestine. And they laid siege to Jerusalem uh, after defeat, uh, reducing the uh, fortress of Lachish um, in the Jewish countryside. <clears throat> and in 597, they managed to overcome the city. And as was the common practice of the time, they carted off into exile in Babylon. The um, You might say the cream of the crop, the, the leadership of the people, um, their, their best artisans and whatnot, um, which was a, a, method, a method of um, suppressing subsequent um, revolts. If you're living in a foreign country that you don't even know the language, um, you um, tend not to be rebellious Whereas if you're on your ancestral land, you're going to be very, um, make, make an attempt to get it back. Um, needless to say, when they got to Babylon, all of the um, cropland had already been taken by the existing population. <clears throat> and this was when they had to turn to doing non uh, agricultural things. Um, and you might say the beginning of the tradition of uh, being in banks. But <clears throat> they put a fellow on the throne by the name of um, Zechariah, who was a puppet thrown in Jerusalem. He was supposed to see to it that the uh, Jewish state remained a a province of the Babylonian Empire. But um, that happened in 597. Ten years later, the uh, remaining population had gotten very nationalistic again. And... um, forced him to revolt uh, against Babylon. So the Babylonians had to send another army to Jerusalem. 
and they subdued it in 587. So between 597 and 587, the state of Judah remained. But the second time around, the Babylonians decided they were going to be see to us that this could never happen again. <clears throat> they completely destroyed the city of Jerusalem, reduced it to ruins, and carted off another huge segment of the population. And many of those who were not uh, carted to Babylon went down to Egypt to get away from the devastation. So <clears throat> Jerusalem was pretty much left a ghost town. Now, Ezekiel appears to have been a priest of the Jerusalem temple who went with the first group of exiles in 597. And he received his call to prophecy beside a canal in Babylon three years later in 593. His last recorded prophecy was 573, uh, a 20-year span that included the final fall of Jerusalem in 587. He was an unusual person with psychic peculiarities. He had visions in an ecstasy or trance. This affects the form of his message, but not the content. There's a clear outline of his book. The first part is the prophecies given before the final fall of Jerusalem from 593 to 587, which is constituted constitutes the first 24 chapters of the book of Ezekiel, chapters 1 through 24. Then chapters 25 through 32 constitute oracles against neighboring nations. And finally, the prophecies given after the fall of Jerusalem from 587 to 573, the date of his last prophecy. Now, <clears throat> life in captivity for the exiles was not too bad. They were allowed a good bit of freedom to practice their religion. But that there was a big problem there because the Jerusalem temple had been destroyed and they had no way to offer our sacrifices. Um, they were allowed to live together in close-knit communities and improve their economic status. They were paid for their skilled labor. They weren't treated as slaves. For example, Ezekiel had a private house, which we can find in chapter 3, verse 24. This marks the real beginning of Judaism, a term which is not found in the Old Testament. Jew, or Yehudi in the Hebrew, came to mean a descendant of the Judeans who formerly lived in Judah. Um, <clears throat> And this is the point at which we, instead of talking about the Hebrews, start talking about Jews. Now, the danger was that their faith had been oriented towards Palestine and the temple. Torn from their historical moorings and disillusioned by defeat, the temptation was to become absorbed into Babylonian culture, which was far more sophisticated than theirs. And indeed, when the Assyrians... Um, conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and brought off a bunch of people to exile. They did exactly that. They became, um, they blended in with the Assyrian population and ceased to exist as tribes of Israel. 
That's why they're referred to as the Ten Lost Tribes. So the danger was that um, losing their religious identity, they had already lost their national identity, and rather than become absorbed by the Babylonian culture, that they preserved their faith zealously. Now, a number of songs were composed during this period. For example, uh, scholars have come to believe that Psalm 130 and 137 were composed during this period. It was a time of religious activity and reflection on their heritage. Um, when you're down and out, it's a time for um, taking stock of who you are and what you are and what it's, what it's all about. <clears throat> there are a group of people we don't know who they were. They're referred to as editors or redactors who put the historical and prophetic literature into final form with an eye on its relevance to current conditions. For example, the Deuteronomic history. Um, it's during this period that we feel that, or biblical scholars feel that uh, the Old Testament, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, um, etc., were were put together in a in a fabric. They they, they drew on different traditions. Uh, this material common to the northern kingdom of Israel, the material common to the southern kingdom of Judah. Material that had been passed down orally for centuries from family to family. They blended all these together into what we now call the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, <clears throat> there's no evidence of organized local assemblies at this time, but eventually they would evolve what came to be called the synagogue, which is a Greek word meaning bringing together which gradually arose later in response to the need experienced at this time. Now, Ezekiel's basic message, like so many other prophets, was a message of doom. Bizarre imagery of his various visions came from the priestly tradition and Babylonian religious emblems. His God-given task was to be a watchman, to give the people warning of approaching catastrophe, even though there was little chance that they would respond. Whether or not they heeded what he had to say or turned a deaf ear to it, at least they would know a prophet had been among them. Now, as long as Jerusalem stood as a city, the nationalistic ferment inspired plots and intrigues to restore their former king to the throne. Ezekiel consistently decried such hopes in, quote, words of lamentation, mourning, and woe, chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. He made prominent use of what scholars have come to call the prophetic present. An example of that can be found in chapter 7, verses 5 to 7, which I will read to you. 
Thus says the Lord God, disaster upon disaster, see it coming. An end is coming. The end is coming upon you. See it coming. The climax has come up for you who dwell in the land. The time has come. Near is the day. A time of consternation, not of rejoicing. That's all written in the present tense, as if it were happening at that point. But it points to something that's coming, the future. As if he had seen this vision, uh, as it had already been accomplished, and is telling them about what's what he saw coming. And that's going to be in the near future. Um, and he used what we call prophetic signs to emphasize his message. Uh, it was the visual part of the audiovisual presentation. Um, he, he dug a hole through a, a, a clay wall and went through it to make the point of the, the people fleeing um, a devastated city, which hadn't happened yet, but would, would soon happen. Um, now, unlike Jeremiah, who was received with hostility and they even wanted to kill him, Ezekiel's message was met with a mild interest, curiosity, and even enjoyment. And you can find that in chapter 33, verses 30 to 33. But there was still a failure on the part of the people to comprehend. Unlike Hosea and Jeremiah, who thought of the wilderness period during the Exodus as a golden age, Ezekiel advocated a kind of original sin idea. There never was a time in Israel's history when the people were sinless. And the basic theme of all of Ezekiel's sermons is the holiness of God demands a holy, faithful people, pure from the stain of idolatry. In other words, cultic sins in his view, are ethical sins. God's judgment had to come before forgiveness. Now, Ezekiel introduces a revolutionary idea into the whole Old Testament fabric because at that day and time and throughout all of the cultures, um, there was no such thing as individualism. One is truly a person only within community. No individualism as we know it. The sin of one brought punishment on all. But in exile, they had been torn from the old social context that had given meaning to their lives. So suffering of the innocent had become a real issue. And it certainly is still one to Ezekiel's contribution to the debate is that each person is responsible for his own destiny. One is not the victim of heredity, environment, or parental sins. Everyone must answer for himself to God alone. Chapter 18. And for no one else. This is still not an adequate answer to the problem of why some good suffer and some bad prosper. It would be the task of the book of Job to take down that problem head on. But it is an effort to turn the people's complaints back upon them. He is saying to them, 
you are not as blameless as you think. Ezekiel saw suffering as an occasion for repentance and deep faith. He also had a message of hope. After 587, when the nationalist illusions had been shattered once and for all, and replaced by despair and remorse, Ezekiel began to speak words of assurance. Now, human self-confidence can express itself in both high hope and deep despair. Once the high hope has been defeated, there's a tendency to, to despair as if this was all my fault. Uh, it's, it's all on my head. Um, and people um, who simply don't understand what's going on will often assume that uh, a notion for example, it's well established uh, that children of couples who are divorcing blame themselves for it. Um, they don't know what's going on, so it must be something they did wrong. Now, Ezekiel's point was we have to be disabused of both unrealistic hope and selfish despair. His famous vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, which can be found in chapter 37, um, and I'll read that to you. The hand of the Lord came upon me, and he led me out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me in the center of the plain, which was now filled with bones. He made me walk among them in every direction so that I saw how many there were on the surface of the plain, how dry they were. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones come to life? Would God, I answered you alone, know that. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. See, I will bring spirit into you, that you may come to life. I will put sinews upon you, make flesh grow over you, cover you with skin, and put spirit in you so that you may come to life and know that I am the Lord. I prophesied as I had been told, and even as I was prophesying, I heard a noise. It was a rattling of the bones come, coming together. Bone joining bone. I saw the sinews and the flesh come upon them, and the skin cover them, but there was no spirit in them. Then the Lord said to me, Prophesy to the spirit. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the spirit, Thus says the Lord God, From the four winds, come, O spirit, and breathe into these slain that they may come to life. I prophesied as he told me, and the Spirit came into them. They came alive and stood upright, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They have been saying, Our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, and we are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, O my people, I will open your graves, and have you rise from them, and bring you back to the land of Israel. And you should know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves, 
and have you rise from them. O my people, I will put my spirit in you that you may live, and I will settle you upon your land. Thus you should know that I am the Lord. I have promised and I will do it, says the Lord. Um, God will breathe new life into his people through his Holy Spirit and restore them to their homeland. Unlike those shepherds who feed themselves rather than the flock, God is the good shepherd who will take the initiative in gathering the sheep that are lost or crippled back into their home pasture. He makes that point in chapter 34. This would not be done because of Israel's goodness, but because the graciousness of such an act would lead them to repentance. Ezekiel spoke of a new temple in a new Jerusalem that would be the center of their lives. In other words, the community of the new covenant would be ecclesiastical rather than political, which today the church would meet that definition. All of this can be found in chapters 40 through 48. Now, biblical scholars have pointed to something called the priestly tradition. As previously noted, the Pentateuch took final shape during the exile. Although interest in time in being written down, the latest in time it being written down, much of the material is quite early. Typical of this material is the Holiness Code of Leviticus chapter 17 to 26. The recurring theme of these ritual and ethical laws is that Israel is a holy people even as God is holy. An atmosphere of worship pervades everything. As we know, Ezekiel was a, had been a priest of the temple in Jerusalem. There's no dramatic narrative about human affairs, but Torah instruction on how good God could be worshipped, written with the sober conviction that Israel's whole life was to be a liturgy, a service of God. We have a break coming up now, and I'll return when we come back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. Are you satisfied with your life? Do you know that more should be possible? Listen for the Access Consciousness Radio Show with the creators of Access, Gary Douglas and Dr. Dane here. Our program offers pragmatic tools to change things in your life that you haven't been able to change until now. What if all of life could come to you with ease, joy, and glory? Tune in to Access Consciousness Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. Are you really? Are you the person you want to be, or are you the person that others want you to be? Think about that. We don't always recognize our gifts and potential because we stick to old methods of being and do what others in our lives tell us. 
It's time to break through. Listen for Rediscovering the Magic of Being with Marja. Each program connects you back to whom you were meant to be every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in. Build your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. Tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. To reach the program today, please call 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. You may also send an email to defendingcatholicfaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Hello, we're returning now to the prophet Ezekiel during exile. And we were talking about the priestly tradition, which went together with making up the first five books of the Old Testament. The book of Leviticus is mostly um, prescriptions for worship and how the whole people of God are going to be constituted by worship. But there's also a high ethical fervor in there and in this space, it seems, it seems surprising to some of us that we get these words from Leviticus chapter 19. Take no revenge and cherish no grudge against your fellow countrymen. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's the famous commandment which Jesus picked out of the Old Testament. The first is, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two great commandments stand all the law and prophets. Um, it's right there in Leviticus where you would least expect to find it. But that gives you an idea high of the book. From the priestly point of view, God's revelation follows a prearranged systematic plan that unfolds in four successive eras or dispensations, each marked by the dispensing of certain privileges and duties. You don't get privileges without the duties. That's something we still need to be reminded of today. In their version of creation, which is chapter 1 of Genesis and the first four verses of chapter 2, the purpose of this version is not a treatise on scientific origins, but a declaration of the dependence of everything for its existence on a meeting and meeting on God. Here, in contrast to the next second account of creation, it begins with verse 4 of chapter 2, God is remote and transcendent. Let there be light, boom, there is light. Um... By placing the creation of man last, this uh, priestly tradition asserts that we are the crown of God's creation. But man's ability now, however, consists in being given a special task to represent God and exercise dominion within God's kingdom. Only within God's kingdom. Just as an aside, 
an interesting little tidbit. In chapter 1, verses 29 and 30 of Genesis, man was meant to be a vegetarian. For those of you who want biblical justification for being a vegetarian. Secondly, there was the covenant with Noah. Genesis 19, 1 to 17. A new privilege is now enacted. Animal meat can be eaten, provided it is bloodless. Because in their of the ancient world generally, blood and life were synonymous. You can't have one without the other. Therefore, it is sacred to God. So that's why the insistence upon any meat being eaten be bloodless. Thus, the origin of sacrifice, which is a priestly concern. Um, the whole offering, the holocaust of the whole animal. Uh, most of the time, sacrifice was parts of the animal, which had been um, the priests were the butchers of their day. And they would take their portion to take home and the portion for sacrifice and, and the remaining would be given back available parts given back to the person offering the sacrifice. Um, and the, the origin of sacrifice um, and the reason why you don't want to eat um, food handed to you by a non-Jewish person is it may have been offered to uh, another divinity uh, before, before um, they took it home. <clears throat> but now there's a covenant with Noah which promises never again to uh, flood the earth and, and wipe out everything. There's also a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, which is a promise that Abraham would be the father of many nations. And it was sealed with the commandment concerning circumcision, another basic institution of priestly religion. Also a narrowing of focus here to one individual and his descendants. Finally, there's the covenant on Sinai. In the book of Exodus, 20, chapter 29, verses 43 to 46. And in Ezekiel, chapter 43, verses 7 to 9. Israel was called to be a holy community, separated from other nations, in order to be the tabernacle for a holy God. Thus, there could be no toleration of ethical or ritual purity because that would defile the people and make them less than holy. Um, the departure from Sinai, depicted in Numbers chapter 10, verses 11, and verses following, a large body of Torah, or teaching, is inserted, dealing with furnishings of the tabernacle, construction of the ark, various kinds of sacrifice, laws related to kosher or permitted foods, regulations for the sacred calendar, and so forth. 
Now, for the priestly tradition, revelation is not so much an event that happened between God and man, as it is something given to man in the form of laws and institutions. Hence, Moses is the central figure. The priestly uh, tradition is more interested in what God says and does than in human response to divine deeds. Now, the problem with this approach is that faith tends to be, be, become assent to what is written in an inspired book. And we have that same uh, phenomenon with us today in the fundamentalists. And there is also an interest in genealogies, all of the begats of the King James Version. And the begats, that long list, um, are making a theological point. Nothing is just for the sake of itself in the in the Old Testament. Um, if you'll notice, that long list of begats begins with um, Methuselah, who was supposed to be 800 years old. And by the time you get to the end of it, you'll notice that the age of, of the, the people who are dying gets lower and lower. In other words, the wages of sin is death. And as people get further and further away from God, they don't live as long. God is the source of life. Now, we come to the return from the exile, which can be found in the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 54. Biblical scholars have given this, this set of writings the name of Second Isaiah. They don't know who it was, but it was attached to the book of First Isaiah um, seamlessly without any um, indication of um, changing of author, but the the theme is very different. Um, the break between chapter thirty nine and forty is is, is dramatic. In the chapter 39, it ends with these words. Some of your own bodily descendants shall be taken and made servants in the palace of the king of Babylon. Hezekiah replied to Isaiah, the word of the Lord, which you have spoken, is favorable. But he thought there would be peace and security in my lifetime. But then, beginning of chapter 40, the tone and everything completely changes. Comfort. Give comfort to my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her service is at an end. Her guilt is expiated. In other words, that's at the end of the exile. Indeed, she has received from the hand of the Lord double for all her sins. A voice cries out, In the desert prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the wasteland a highway for our God. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The rugged land shall be made a plain, the rough country a broad valley. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. 
and all mankind shall sit together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In other words, it's a, a description of a superhighway, interstate highway being built from Babylon back to the, uh, their homeland in, in Jerusalem. Um, needless to say, um, not everyone returned when the time came. And that's what I'm about to talk about. The Neo-Babylonian or Chaldean Empire didn't last much longer than its first and greatest emperor, Nebuchadnezzar, who died in 562. After his death, the throne changed hands three times in seven years. The last was a fellow by the name of Nabonidus, who lived from 550, who reigned from 555 to 539, who was unpopular with most segments of society. The only other kingdoms we know at the time were Persia, which we now call Iran, Medea and Lydia in western Turkey, ruled by Croesus, famous for his wealth. We still have that expression, richest Croesus. Um, by 546, a Persian by the name of Cyrus had conquered Medea and Lydia creating a vast empire surrounding Babylon. Finally, the Babylonians themselves were defeated in a great battle at Opus on the Tigris River in the year 539. So from the fall of Jerusalem in 597 to 539 is, is the shortness of the Babylonian empire. We've got another break coming up, so I'll be back to talk to you shortly. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. The White House Doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's time to transform your life. Start by tuning in to The Glenise Show with Glenise Hughes. Glenise combines business, relationships, wealth, life, and a whole lot of magic to create abundance and prosperity in every part of your life. It's all done through straight and often frank discussions in the best way that Glenise knows how. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Master your life with The Glenise Show. Success starts here. 
VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. To reach the program today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to defendingcatholicfaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Just something about um, the fall of Babylon as an empire brought about by a Persian by the name of Cyrus who defeated their forces decisively in the year 539 B.C. Now, for his time, Cyrus had what could only be called enlightened policies such as leniency towards captured nobility and allowing displaced peoples to return to their homeland. And all of this, he saw to it, was preceded him, so that the people who had suffered at the hands of the Babylonians would be less likely to support the Babylonians. Um, you might say creating a fifth column behind the lines. Um, he was welcomed as a liberator by many in Babylon, and in chapter 44 of Isaiah, which is we know call the second Isaiah, he is even called Yahweh's shepherd. And I'll read that to you. I say of Cyrus, I being the Lord, my shepherd who fulfills my every wish, he shall say of Jerusalem, let her be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. First verse of chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed. Anointed is where you get the word Messiah. Cyrus, whose right hand I grasp, subduing nations before him, making kings run in his service, opening doors before him, leaving the gates unbarred. That's extraordinary when you think of it. a person who was not of the Hebrew faith uh, is being looked upon by Second Isaiah as not just a liberator, but an instrument of, of Yahweh. Um, so that was his approach as the background for this prophet's work. So scholars have dated the start of his career as of around 540 B.C., that's Second Isaiah. In contrast to the balanced stately poetry of the first Isaiah, which is appropriate to a solemn warning, here we have the rhapsodic lyricism of a triumphant song and a new theological emphasis. His commission is to speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim deliverance, a message of comfort and hope. Um, could he be a later disciple of Isaiah trying to give a fresh exposition of his master's teaching in a time of desperation maybe we don't know it would explain why these oracles are not represented as being spoken directly to him 
and why his personality recedes into the background. No name is given. It would also explain why this group of oracles was attached to Isaiah's teachings as an interpretive supplement. Now, in Isaiah chapters 40 to 40, the first 11 verses of chapter 40, as I read before. Comfort, give comfort to my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her service is at an end. Her guilt is expiated. Indeed, she has received from the hand of the Lord double for all her sins. The opening scene is in a heavenly council of Yahweh. and The focus shifts from heaven to earth. The two imperatives, comfort, comfort, are plural, talking about the people. Israel is to be released from a bondage heavier than of foreign captivity, her guilt. It is a message of pardon and grace. The past is forgiven, not because the books have been balanced, as it were, but because only the free gift of God's forgiveness makes a whole new beginning possible. Um... That is something that still rings true for us today. Um, one of the characteristics of some of the great conversions of history, St. Augustine down to the present, is the feeling of um, finding God a source of comfort because the burden of one's self-guilt has been lifted from us. Um, and that's what the sacrament of confession is all about. Um, a lot of people, and this was true of me too, because I wasn't raised Catholic, first confession is a very important experience. And in my case, it was a realization for the first time in my life that God's love cannot be bought, that um, I had been a perfectionist trying to earn my own father's affection, and I had displaced that onto God. Um, it can't be done. And there's, there's this gratuitous kind of uh, forgiveness which enables us to make a new beginning, to see the world through a different set of lenses. Um, it came as something of a revelation to me. Um, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is near. That's Isaiah, second Isaiah's message. In verse 3 of chapter 40, the voice is not in the wilderness, which is the translation into Greek by the Septuagint. But in the Hebrew version, it's the voice in the heavenly council. In verses 6 to 8, there's an important insight into nature revelation. God's word is not only eternal and above history, it enters into time and governs history while revealing God. The poem ends in verse 11, on the same note as it began, 
tenderness. Subsequent poems elaborate the theme announced in this prologue. God's imminent arrival to inaugurate his kingdom and two significant titles ascribed to God, creator and redeemer. Both manifest God's sovereignty over Israel, over all nations and history. Both are flip sides of the same coin. Creation is not a one-time event, but an ongoing process. And in redeeming his people, God recreates them. Both human lives and nature will be marvelously transformed into something new. There's no boundary between uh, creation and redemption. The central motif of this material is a new exodus back home to Jerusalem. Second Isaiah also adds a, a new note to the mix, and that is his universalism. He makes frequent reference to coastlands and isles, which shows that he thought in terms broader than the Fertile Crescent. Yet Israel still occupies a special place. Her redemption is a part of the redemption of all the nations. Her calling to be a light to the nations, illuminating the darkness of the world. His critique of idols is that they are powerless to direct the course of history. Thus, they are nothing. They have to be carried. But Yahweh carries his people and lifts their burdens. For the first time, we have here a vision of history's unity under a purpose of one God that provides the base for an appeal to all humanity. The true meaning of Israel's election is to be the servant of God's wide-reaching historical purpose. That brings to the famous poems in 2nd Isaiah, which the biblical scholars have recalled the servant of God poems, which embody the idea of service have been a part of Israel's faith from the very beginning. The mysterious suffering servant is described in four passages. Let's just take a look at one of them. Chapter 50, verses 4 to 9. The Lord God has given me a well-trained tongue, that I may know how to speak to the weary. A word will rouse them. Morning after morning he opens my ear that I may hear, and I have not rebelled, have not turned back. I give my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who plucked my beard. My face I did not yield, I did not shield from buffets and spitting. The Lord God is my help, and therefore I am not disgraced. Um, gives you a flavor of the Suffering Servant poems. In the first place, the servant is identified with Israel. Verse 3 of chapter 49. Yet again, he is said to have a mission to Israel. Verses 5 and 6 of 49. In other words, an individual. So you have 
two possibilities of who this suffering servant is, the people of Israel or some individual. The probable solution is an individual may incarnate the whole community, as Abraham did. Whenever Abraham is mentioned in the Old Testament, it's not just as a person, but the wives and children and servants who went, and the livestock that went with him. It, it was Abraham was a whole tribe, not just an individual person. But yet, Abraham himself was an individual. In other words, the one includes the many in a spiritual unity that binds all generations together. It is unnecessary to choose between an individual and a corporate interpretation of the servant. Both are true. The main thing to remember he is God's agent who will bring justice to the nations in a quiet way, in contrast to the methods of a military conqueror. He typifies the meek who will inherit the earth. There's a sense in which he is a future figure, yet also in the present, age. The future can enter the present. The power of the coming kingdom can be felt in the old order. Now, this is not just a message of deliverance, which would be nationalism, but a vision of God being glorified through the servant's universal mission. Israel's nobility is her task, her service. The deepest mystery of the servant's calling, he will be highly exalted through suffering. It is through suffering that God curates his kingdom. He is and will be a man of sorrows, whose garb of humiliation will be removed in the end, and all will come to know who he really is. Nations will be astonished. Kings will bow in reverent silence before him. It had been thought that he was afflicted by God for his sins, but it turned out that all along he had been suffering in their stead. His suffering was vicarious for the nation, for all the nations. Unlike most sufferers, he did not cry out in bitterness and self-pity, but bore his cross silently without complaint or vindictiveness. He is not just another martyr who manages to grin and bear it. God is identified with and involved in his voluntary sacrifice. Now, in other ancient religions, sacrifice was a technique for controlling the will of the gods, but not so for Israel. It's a two-way street in which God approaches man in grace and man responds in faith. Well, we've come to the end of uh, today's show. I hope to see you again next week. And God bless. Thank you for tuning in to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Please join Father John Holloman again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hope you have a very good week.